What can I say about today's guest, Dr. Burton Malkiel? He's a living legend. His all-time classic, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, is widely regarded as one of the most influential books in the history of investment management. I can't emphasize enough just how much of an impact it's had on the entire financial industry. Before Random Walks publishing in 1973, it was not common practice for investors to use passive, low-cost index funds as an investment vehicle at all in their investment portfolios towards retirement. And in fact, Dr. Malkiel was ridiculed for advocating for low-cost index funds. All of us who work in finance stand on the shoulders of this guy, this giant. He's an undergraduate and graduate from Harvard University. He has a PhD from Princeton. And he served as the dean of the Yale School of Organization and Management. And yes, he served on the President's Council of Economic Advisors in Washington, D.C. He even served as a first lieutenant in the U.S. Army Finance Corps. The bottom line is Dr. Burton Malkiel is a financial warrior. And I think you're going to love and remember today's interview. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. For those listeners who haven't read A Random Walk Down Wall Street, it is it is the perennial book that I think most people read in the early days of being in the investment industry. And you continue to read it because Bert has updated this book. This is the, what, the 13th edition? Yeah, the 13th edition, which um, is really the 50th anniversary edition. And, you know, you're absolutely right that there's a lot of new things in it because, as I think you know, one of the things it recommends is that people have as the core of their portfolio index funds. And index funds didn't even exist 50 years ago when the book was first written. So, so many of the instruments that are available for investors are different over time. And each edition has made sure, since this is an investment guide, that we're up to date on exactly the instruments that are available. As I said, we didn't have index funds uh, 50 years ago. Now we have lots of different index funds. We have exchange-traded funds. We've got bond funds. We've got tax-exempt funds. We didn't have money market funds in the uh, past. So a lot of the things that people can use to retire sooner were not available at the beginning. And as they have become available, they've been incorporated into the book. Give you another couple of examples. Roth IRAs were not available. And uh, one of the ways in which you can retire sooner is to make sure that as you save, you save within instruments that give you tax advantages that allow you to compound your money tax-free. 
So a lot of that is new. And there's also, uh, you know, many different kinds of funds that people need to know about. There weren't uh, these uh, so-called ESG funds that are very popular now and that are advertised very heavily. There weren't so-called factor uh, funds that now are available. And the question for investors is, uh, are these going to be helpful to you in achieving your goals or are they going to be uh, problems? So a lot of that is what's in, and probably one of the major things that's in is uh, sometimes in investing, we are our own worst enemies. And there are really two things about investing that you need to do correctly. One, you need to know how to do the right thing. And secondly, you have to be very well aware of what's the wrong thing because mistakes can ruin any investment program, even if you're starting off okay. So there's uh, a lot of material about some of the uh, bubbles that uh, have uh, ruined programs. Well, Bert, let me ask you this. And you bring up this really, I think in the newest edition, you bring up this great point about... And, and this is kind of the double-edged sword that you were just alluding to. The fact that when you wrote the original random walk down wall street, there was no Roth IRA. There's no 529. They, we didn't have, exactly. we didn't even have money market funds. So you get all this financial, this great financial innovation and the wall, the barriers have come down. And back when you wrote the book originally trading costs, hundreds of dollars to do a trade today, it's virtually zero, no matter where you go. But I think that you also bring up the point that it's, it also creates more landmines, right? Is that, is that part of financial innovation? Absolutely. There's been an enormous amount of financial innovation, and some of it, as you have suggested, is very good. The fact that I can buy an exchange-traded, broad-based index fund and pay two or three basis points, two or three one-hundredths of one percent, this is great. But there have also been financial innovations that can kill you. There's also Bitcoin today. And that is something that is uh, a real landmine. There are also some discount brokers that will encourage you to trade, encourage you to gamble. And uh, if you've made a correct trade, they'll be like the home run screens in baseball uh, where... Uh, like a video game. Yeah. So forth. Yeah. So... You're absolutely right. The, and, and distinguishing between the innovations that have been helpful and the innovations that can lead you astray is exactly what was the objective in making sure that I have covered all of these things. And uh, uh, all of the bubbles, the, the meme stocks that we've gone through uh, recently, uh, where uh, uh, you had a video game retailer who was trying to sell them through stores at the time when uh, uh, we'd moved long beyond that and people were getting them online. And GameStop was then doubling and then doubling again. And there's an internet mob that keeps egging you on and telling you, this is the way you get, this is the way to retire. This is the way to retire sooner. 
That's not the way to retire sooner. And that's part of the reason that I think the book can be very helpful for people. So you talk a lot about bubbles and there's just so many examples of bubbles and, and you start with the tulip craze. And then of course there's so the Japanese real estate bubble, the bubble of, through the uh, stock market crash in the twenties, obviously leading to the depression. And then 87, the dot-com crash, obviously in 2000, but I, maybe I want to start with your central thesis of this book back in 1973. And I guess I, my question will is to, to you is what is, how do you feel about that central thesis today, 50 years later, when this book was published, it was the heyday of the stock picker. It was the heyday of the stock broker. It was the heyday of hundred, I don't even remember. I, I wasn't in the business in, in 73, but I can imagine commissions, you could, commissions were probably hundreds of dollars to buy a couple hundred shares of stock. When you came out and said, look, technical analysis doesn't work. Fundamental analysis has its fundamental flaws and you should own low cost index funds way back. This is, you were saying this back in the seventies. It was like a the wall street was, it was, they, they took offense to it. It was like an obscenity. You can't say that. Uh, what do you say to that? What did you say back then in the seventies? And what do you say today to that? Well, back in the seventies, I mean, I had started to do some work myself and I started my career on wall street. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I was quite well aware of that, but I would gather the data on returns and uh, some of my academic colleagues had done the work. And it was becoming clear that the emperor didn't have any clothes, that in fact, this wonderful way of stock picking and uh, obviously we can uh, outperform the market. You don't want an index fund that's guaranteed mediocrity. But in fact, the data show that, in fact, it's superior investing. And uh, I think today, the last 20 years, we've had very well publicized, uh, not simply within the academy, but Standard & Poor's uh, has been doing something called a SPIVA report, S-P-I-V-A, which uh, stands for the Standard & Poor's Indexes versus active management. And what's fascinating about this is that every year when they do the report, about two thirds of active managers do worse than are outperformed by a simple index. And moreover, the one third that win in one year aren't the same as the one third that win in the next year. And so now, uh, within the last 10 years, then Spiva has been saying, okay, what happens when you compound it over 10 years? And in fact, then it's 90%. And in their recent one, they've been able to first do this for 20 years. And I think the, the data in the last report showed we're talking about 93 to 94% are outperformed. I'm not saying it's impossible uh, to outperform. Sure. Uh, not at all. There are some people who have done it, but it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And the problem is if you go out and you say, no, I'm not going to just do a, a broad-based index fund. I'm going to find that top manager. You're very likely to be in that 90 plus percent that underperform rather than that small uh, sliver that outperform. 
Well, you just give you a recent example. Sure. Uh, and, you know, people had uh, uh, criticized me in a talk I was giving a couple of years ago. And they said, oh, you know, you're absolutely crazy. You want an index fund? I've been in Kathy Wood's fund. And uh, what she does is she invests in the strongest innovative companies and yep, the S&P was up 20% last year, but she was up 100%. And she was up 100% in the next year. And uh, her fund was selling at $150 a share. And of course, what uh, she was simply uh, doing was riding a kind of bubble wave with some of these uh, small companies that were making no money. And uh, that $150 went down to $30. You know, it's up to, <laughs> she's now blowing her own horn because she's up to $40 now. <laughs> but that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and look, you want to do a little of this, it's fine, but make sure the core of your investment portfolio uh, is indexed. I mean, people sometimes also say, hey, wait a minute, Bert, you buy individual stocks, don't you? I say, sure, I do. And I do that because my SEP IRA, that's my basic retirement fund, is 100% in index funds. And then around the edges, fine, go do it. But make sure the core of your serious money that you're looking toward, retire looking toward retirement and you want to retire as quickly as you can, put that in broad-based index funds. And I think that this goes back to, you have this whole new chapter on behavioral investing. And even though I, I would say you're considered a, a purist to some extent, because you've been advocating a little bit like John, but I, let me ask you this. I, my, my immediate question reading, rereading your book was, I wonder, did you know Jack Bogle pretty well? Because you have a similar period of time when you were advocating it index funds. Oh, absolutely. I knew Jack Bogle was a great friend. I was uh, on the uh, Vanguard board for 28 years. So I knew uh, Jack Bogle extremely well. Uh, and you're absolutely right. We got along famously uh, because we both did have the same uh, philosophy. So uh, absolutely. And uh, Jack was uh, certainly one of my heroes. Because I'll tell you one of the reasons he was the hero, it's fine for an academic to go and write a book and say, go buy index funds. But Jack bet his whole company on starting an index fund. And, you know, you asked about the initial reaction. Yeah. He, when he put together the first index fund, he was going to have an initial public offering, went to Wall Street, got some bankers together, said, he said, I want to sell 250 million. They went out, canvassed the market, went back to Jack and said, well, 250 is a little too much. Yeah, we know we're not finding the people are beating down the doors for this. Let's have the, uh, the new issue, 150 million. Well, they had the issue of 150 million. And you know how much Jack sold of that first index fund? $11 million. And it was called Bogle's Folly. Uh, right, and right. Uh, uh, believe me, this was, I used to kid with Jack that he and I were probably the only 
uh, people who held the index fund when it first came out. Well, it was Malkiel and and Bogle against the world for a while, right? I mean, it, I think that's right. Yeah. Did it feel that way? I mean, this is, I guess, going back to just you having this the perseverance back in the seventies. You were the Wall Street guy. He's the academic. You both had this very, very, very uh, adamant view that why not beat 90% of most managers over time, or maybe more than that back then. Was it hard in Wall Street? Well, I think that the holding on to it was not simply stubbornness, uh, but also because the, the data came in and it was so clear that it wasn't mediocrity, that the average active equity fund managed, underperformed the index fund by about 1% a year. And boy, you know, Albert Einstein was the one who presumably uh, is quoted as saying that uh, the strongest force in the world is compound interest. And the difference of that 1%, as you well know, in getting to your retirement goal and getting to your retirement goal sooner makes all the difference in the world. And so it wasn't just stubbornness and and, uh, uh, being adamant, but the fact that the evidence just came in stronger and stronger that this was an optimal way uh, of building up a retirement fund. Full disclosure, I am affiliated with Capital Investment Advisors, which is a full service and a fee-only financial planning and investment management firm in Atlanta and Denver and Tampa and Phoenix or wherever you are. And if you'd like to take your retirement planning or retire sooner journey to the next level, Capital Investment Advisors would love to help. You can find our team and schedule a time to chat right at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R wealth.com. I want to talk about both efficient market hypothesis, and I would like to talk about modern portfolio theory. Those two, I think, really critical pieces of the equation for investors, because it it also, and, and, then I, and then we'll follow up with behavioral investing, because it's one thing to say for our listeners and for any investor that, of course, right, we, we know equities have been the best place to be long, 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 long run. However, what gets in our way is the emotional or the difficulty of, of dealing with the amount of volatility that comes along with that. So it's not, right. it's not just about what is the best vehicle. It's what can we kind of, what can we handle? What can we take from a behavioral perspective as investors? So let's maybe start with the efficient markets and what that really means for investors. What it basically means is that information gets reflected in prices reasonably quickly that, you know, if there's a new cure for cancer that comes up and a pharmaceutical company gets approval and uh, that looks like it should make the market value of that company uh, 50% more than its current market value, uh, because there are a lot of people around looking for that sort of thing, it will reflect that information very quickly without delay. Uh, and that's the general idea. It doesn't mean necessarily that uh, market prices are always right, because, you know, we never know 
this cure a new cure? Will it have side effects? Uh, will, in fact, the sales be the kind of sales that were projected? So, you know, maybe the stock overreacts, maybe it underreacts. Uh, uh, you know, we never know. Prices are never exactly right. But the market does a reasonable job of getting that information reflected without biases one way or another. Now, it doesn't mean, though, that it's always right. In fact, I've often said prices are not necessarily always right. In fact, they're always wrong. And sometimes the markets go absolutely crazy, uh, as they did in uh, 1999 and early 2000, when uh, Amazon and Microsoft sold at well over 100 times uh, earnings. And even those wonderful companies lost 90% of their uh, value when the dot-com, as it was called, bubble ended. But nobody, nobody is able to predict this in advance. And, and this is, I think, what, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, gee, every, it was so obvious that uh, we were in a dot-com bubble. Well, what people don't remember is the person who coined the expression irrational exuberance was Alan Greenspan. And he coined that expression not in uh, March of 2000 at the peak of the bubble, but in 1996. And if you, in fact, bought in 1996, uh, uh, you actually uh, did uh, very well. So I'm not saying that bubbles don't exist. And on the meme stock thing, I had mentioned GameStop and how crazy it was that it doubled, it was making no money, it doubled and then doubled again. Well, everyone knew it was crazy. Yeah. Well, Melvin Capital, a hedge fund, went in and shorted the stock uh, and shorted it to such an extent that when it doubled again, they went bankrupt. So, sure, the market gets it wrong from time to time, but there is nobody, and I mean this, nobody who can consistently do better than the market and the uh, the market usually gets it fairly right and is awfully hard to beat. And I think the lesson is it's awfully hard to beat, have the core indexed, and also don't you dare try to time the market because you got to be right twice. Right. You got to be right when you get out, you got to be right when you get back in. You'll never do that. So let's say we layer in efficient market hypothesis that the market is mostly has almost almost all the information. It quickly reflects prices. We know that it's tough emotionally, and and it's almost I'm thinking I think back of those periods of time, and and it's so crystal clear today, right? These great even the great companies are trading a hundred times earnings. It's sure. so crystal clear. But it also, then you have to deal with the herd. You have to deal with the sentiment and then the time, right? It can be irrational for a long period of time, right? I mean, four years is an eternity. And, and markets can be irrational for a long period of time. So how do then we go from, what is the practical step? And if you go back to modern portfolio theory, where we're trying to put different pieces together, do you believe in, uh, and again, this is for our, our listener here, 
Do you believe in trying to be 100% in stocks or do you believe in pairing that with these with other asset classes to try to dampen down volatility, knowing that your returns may be lower over time? It depends upon who you are. And let me tell you, uh, let me answer it the, in the following way. If I am talking to somebody, which I often do of... Uh, say, new assistant professors in my university that uh, we have a retirement plan and it's matched by the employer, I'd say you should probably be 100% in equities because one of the things, if you're putting money in regularly, the volatility is actually your friend rather than your enemy. Because what you're doing is dollar cost averaging. And when the market has its swoons, which it inevitably will, you're buying more shares at that low price. And yep, you're going to be buying at the top of some bubbles, but you're at least buying fewer shares. And your average cost per share is going to be less than the average of the prices. So uh, for a young person, don't worry about what your 401k or 403b plan looks like uh, month by month. Just keep putting the money in and by God, 20, 30 years from now, you're gonna be very happy with what you did. Now, for someone like myself, who actually did that and now has the advantages of having a very large IRA and I am required to take required minimum distributions. What I do is the distribution that I'm going to have to take in one year is in a one-year treasury bill yielding almost 5%. And the stuff that I'm going to have to take out in two years should be in a two-year treasury bill yielding four and three quarters uh, uh, percent. So there's no one right portfolio for everybody. And there's no question about the fact that in general, people who are older and especially those who are taking out required minimum distributions You need something balanced with other asset classes. But I would say for very young people, I would certainly start off all equities because equities are the favored asset for the long run. And furthermore, if I as an economist kind of worry about what the economic situation is likely to be over the next five to 10 years, I think there's a very good chance that we are not going to get down to a 2% or less unnoticeable inflation. And remember that with equities, you're buying companies that have real assets that do tend to be good uh, inflation hedges. But back then to the, uh, the diversification, probably other real estate and other equity investments, as you get a bigger portfolio, would be something that I would add 
to the basic equity portfolio that I think everybody should start with. Yeah, it's the, it's that thought around companies really do have assets, and those assets can also inflate along with inflation, and that, and sure. that's particularly why we're such believers here too that that if we're, if we're really going to outpace inflation, we've got to have a substantial component in the equity side or the stock side of the market. Now, you mentioned for the younger professors, all stocks. I get it. But what about the 60-year-old, the 65-year-old that's no longer accumulating? They're not doing the dollar cost averaging. They're not putting money in every month anymore, and they've got their reservoir. Is that where you would be more aggressive around modern portfolio theory? Well, again, even there, it would depend. And what it depends upon is the following, that in terms of something that you have been participating in without a Roth IRA, so that you're going to be, it's going to be taxable when you take it out, you need to shift. You need to shift uh, into uh, some assets uh, that are going to keep their monetary value because you don't want uh, during a period, uh, say like uh, 2022, when the market's down 20%, you don't want to have to go and sell your equities at that time in order to fund the required minimum distribution. So definitely, you need something much more uh, balanced. And as I suggested, I'd even be particularly safe. And the money that I need, particularly now, where there are some positive interest rates in the bond market, I think something uh, like a one-year, two-year, three-year treasuries uh, make an enormous uh, amount of sense. But there's another part of it, too, that to the extent that you've uh, done well, you've got enough to live on, your RMDs are going to take care of you, and you're still doing some investing, you may be investing then for your children and grandchildren, and it's not necessarily your horizon then that's important. It's the horizon of your children and grandchildren. And so again, there's no one rule. Uh, you can't simply say, oh, if you're in your 60s, you do this. It'll depend on what your assets uh, are. And it will also depend upon, and I think this is also very important, whether or not you can take the inevitable fluctuations in your uh, net worth. You know, there's an old story about the guy who talked to uh, J.P. Morgan and said, you know, I've been in equities and uh, I'm telling you, I, I can't sleep at night. Uh, what should I do? And J.P. Morgan said, well, you should uh, sell down to the sleeping point. So partly your emotional uh, you know, you've got to be emotional. If you're going to be in equities, uh, either don't look at your 401k uh, report or understand that it's going to fluctuate and don't let it affect what you do. Because again, the, the, the idea of investing is know what to do right and what to do and what not to do. One of the things we know when people have their emotions dictating what they do, the data are so clear that money goes into equity mutual funds, usually when everyone is optimistic and the market's going up. 
and money comes out of them when the market's going down. It it it's like clockwork. This happens it's because our emotions right? yeah, make us do the wrong thing. And the only defense for that is to understand it. And as far as I'm concerned, make sure when you're accumulating, put it on automatic pilot and realize that the fluctuations will help you through the advantages of dollar cost averaging. So I, I think that one of the, and I think this is in the modern portfolio theory section of the book where you get, I, I always have loved the the beaches, the resort company versus the umbrella company, right? One makes money when it's the sun's out and one makes money when the when it's raining. And an example of diversification is that you, you want to own both of those companies. That gives you some diversification. I think that diversification, modern portfolio theory, which is multiple different areas of the market or different asset classes all combined. What is the all in an effort to try to keep us as much invested as we can, right? Because we do know that long-term equities, as long as we give it time and time and time, are typically going to be our best bet. But is there a portfolio for you or a mix that reduces what, what I would call shakeout risk? And, and again, to your story, maybe the sleeping point or the point where you get shaken out of markets. You had a plan. You were 75% in equities. I have 25% in bonds. And that was my ballast. And I thought that that was my risk tolerance, but invariably the markets are worse than you expected and you, and you couldn't take it and you were shaken out. And Bert, as you know, that's typically why individual investors typically do have returns that are subpar because of those, those periods of time where they get shaken out. Is there any sort of solution for that? Is it a balanced portfolio from day one? What is your thought on that? Well, first of all, the whole idea of uh, an index fund is you want the broadest index fund possible. Uh, and I think this is actually one of the things that's maybe not so positive about the proliferation of exchange traded funds, because they get narrower and narrower when you buy a total stock market index fund, you have the umbrella manufacturer uh, and you have the resort owner. Uh, you're already, by having the broadest index fund possible, taking advantage of uh, portfolio theory, and portfolio theory leads to wanting a broad-based index fund. But it also means that, sure, for some people who are really, uh, really uh, concerned, it does mean that you want other asset classes in there, including a good proportion of your portfolio into money market funds. I think the only solution is that everyone needs at least some liquid funds because you know, the medical emergency happens just when Junior has cracked up the family car. So <laughs> and tuition uh, is due. Part of the thing is to get a fair, substantial part of your portfolio in very, very safe short-term securities. And for the nervous Nellies, that's probably bigger than it is for other people. And also to have asset classes that don't uh, move exactly in the same direction as the stock market. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I think 
uh, real estate funds, which would impart a little more stability into a portfolio that still has inflation protection will work. And even some bonds, uh, recognizing that bonds aren't going to do it for you all the time. In general, bonds move in opposite directions. But when inflation just exploded from 1% to, uh, you, you know, the high single digits, bonds were tough. And so what it suggests to me is probably you need some bonds, but maybe the thing you ought to look for are inflation indexed bonds as another way in which you can get some stability. Uh, well, that's another area that wasn't around either when you first wrote the book, right? There were no, uh, there were no, no tips, either. no treasury. And, and one of the things that individuals can do now uh, is that they can put $10,000 into U.S. Treasury I-bonds, which recently have been yielding high single-digit yields. They're indexed to inflation, and uh, a married couple can get to 20000 a year. If you have an income tax refund coming, you can get another 5000 from there. So again, some more stable investments. And if, as I am, you're worried that, gee, I hope to hell the Federal Reserve does get things back to 2% or less. But if you're worried the way I am that they might not, that safe part would look for instruments that are inflation uh, indexed, and those will be a wonderful balance for the volatility of the equity market. Let me ask you a little bit about the behavioral finance, right? Uh, in investing plus humanity, I think you call it in the book. And that we're not necessarily rational investors all the time. I love this, the, the, some of the statistics about how we overestimate our abilities. So we have this overconfidence and our judgment gets biased. I think that it was something around 60% of men rank themselves in the top 60% of men rank themselves in the top 25% of athletic ability. Only 6% believe that they're below average. So, so only 6% think that they're not in the bottom 50%. Numbers don't add up. And that, how does that relate over or back to investing in general? Well, what it suggests is you think, no, I am uh, really smart. I know that this new technology is going to uh, take over the world that, uh, Bitcoin's going to be the new currency for the world, and we've absolutely got to put a big share of our portfolio uh, into that. And if you've ever talked to a person who is a Bitcoin believer, you know that it's that kind of overconfidence that this is going to take over the world. You're a Luddite if you do don't believe it. Yeah. Will, will not. I think a, a currency that's worth $70,000 one year and $30,000 the next and $20,000 the next is not going to be a particularly useful currency. And where it is useful 
if I wanted to go and buy cocaine and uh, traffic in cocaine, then it's probably useful despite its uh, fluctuations. But governments are unlikely to let that uh, continue. And uh, uh, it's wonderful for ransomware because it's harder to trace. But I think that's the problem. And when you talk to people who either there's a uh, technology stock that's going to uh, completely transform the world, and I'm absolutely certain of it, the world's a very uncertain place. And be very, very careful. And if you do do it, do it as a small add-on to what's a good, safe, core portfolio of index funds. For God's sakes, don't think I'm going to be able to retire sooner because my whole portfolio is in Bitcoin. So, A, I take it you, you're not a big fan of cryptocurrency, one. And I actually, I'd, like to, I'd love to hear even more about that. And two, I think you have this very rational elixir for human investing emotion or the problem that that creates is it's almost as though you you're telling us that it's okay to satisfy the itch i think there's something that you've said something around we almost can't help but be fascinated by the future or the unknown so we've got this cloudy crystal ball but it's just so alluring to try to figure out what's going to be next but to your point as long as you for the vast majority of your investments they're in something broadly diversified low cost then go ahead Go ahead and satisfy the investor itch that you have. Own some individual stocks. Do something that may be more speculative, but just do it in such a, a modest way or a measured way that it's not going to hurt the overall picture. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? That you have uh, summed up my philosophy perfectly. And let me add another thing that you might want to do. Investing is emotional. You get emotional satisfaction. And if you're the kind of person who thinks that, in fact, solar panels are the way to go to save humanity, then buy a solar panel company. I mean, I think this is fine. Or wind power is going to be it. Or hydrogen, whatever. Go and do that. And that would be another example of an add-on to a portfolio that undoubtedly will make you feel better, but don't buy a total ESG fund where, uh, in fact, it's not even clear that these funds do what they're supposed to, and they're very high cost, and they're not the way that you should build the core of your portfolio. So you're not a big believer in ESG. I'm, I'm a big believer in if you get enjoyment out of knowing that I'm investing and putting my money into uh, wind power, go ahead and do it. I just don't want you to do it with your core retirement fund. So I wanted to ask you about Roger Ibbotson. And uh, and this is something I remember in the earlier days of my investment career, citing a whole lot and talking about a whole lot. And I think maybe it's one of these things is an adage that I almost just take for granted now. But the, the fact around his studies, Roger Ibbotson, looking at different asset classes, stocks and bonds and cash, treasuries, corporate bonds, et cetera, gold, that the determination of your future returns is so dependent upon 
the essentially the mix that you start with and stay with. Can you maybe explain what Ibbotson said around investing, the 90% plus? Sure. It's the lesson that you also find in Jeremy Siegel's book of stocks for the long run. The data are very clear that of all of the asset classes, the one that has most dependably protected you from inflation, the one that has most dependably given you the biggest long-run rate of return is common stocks. And again, that's why, back to our previous conversation, I want young people starting off to make sure that their portfolio is largely in equities. And if they are super nervous, okay, balance it with something else. But the volatility that can drive you crazy is really an advantage when you're building up a retirement fund, because every once in a while, not that you can time the market, but every once in a while, what you're going to find is you're buying at very close to the bottom. Nobody can tell, but by putting some of your salary in every pay period, this is the best way of making sure that at least some of your investments are made at the most propitious times in the stock market. I don't know if this is your quote, but I think it is from your book. It's not hard to make money in markets. What's hard is to avoid the alluring temptation to throw away money or throw your money away on short, get rich, quick, speculative binges. It's an obvious lesson, but one that is often forgotten. That is from my book and it's absolutely, uh, Absolutely the case. Bert, what is your favorite bubble? If you were to talk about a bubble, a modern versus one of long past, what is the best example of a bubble? Well, a bubble really exists when um, some asset class, some stock, it just gets completely divorced from reality. And even when the underlying instrument is a good instrument. And my favorite one, just from the standpoint of an example, is not that, well, everyone knew this wasn't a real company, but this happens with real companies. And people don't remember that uh, uh, Amazon lost 95% of its value Microsoft lost 95% of its value because when stocks just sell at hundreds of times uh, earnings, nobody can grow that fast. I remember, and I think probably uh, this would be my favorite example, that uh, I was uh, on an investment panel at the end of 1999. And at the uh, end of the panel, the moderator said, please tell me what your favorite investment is for the future. And of course, I said a broad-based index fund. And the other panelists all said Cisco Systems. Cisco Systems uh, was selling at, I don't know, 200 times earnings, but it was a sure thing 
because the internet was going to be the thing of the future, which it was. And Cisco made the switches and backbone of the internet, it was called. And Cisco lost uh, about 99% of its value. And Cisco today is not selling at the price that it sold at in January of 2000. It's probably uh, about half of what it was then. And what you realize is there's just so much growth that is reasonable. I did a calculation. If somebody took the growth rate that was anticipated for Cisco, which was something like 15% a year for 25 years, and you thought that the GDP, the country was going to grow at 5%, which was its growth rate, then if Cisco kept growing at 15% a year, uh, in uh, 30 years, it would be bigger than the GDP. That This is kind of my favorite example. That even, And Cisco was a real company, and it's a real company today. But just when valuations get detached, divorced from reality, that's when you want to uh, really be careful. And I can't tell you how many people said, oh, you don't want an index fund. I'm going to put everything in Cisco systems and I'll have much more money than you. Yeah, I think that we know who got the last laugh on that one by far. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's, a very, it's a very, very different story between those two. But a really good way to look at that too, right? If you're assu- And that's part of your, you talk a lot about fundamental, fundamental analysis and, and, and really looking at companies and what they're earning and their dividends, what dividends are paying, what their dividend growth rates are. And to your point is that we can understand that maybe today for the president or the year, but what's to say that we have any clue where it will be in five years, seven years, eight years, 10 years, to, to your point. And this extrapolation had one company essentially surpassing the entire GDP of the United States. Japan, one of I, another favorite example around Japanese real estate was at one point, what, tell our listeners what how, how crazy that bubble got. At one point, the land around the Imperial Palace in Tokyo was worth more than all of the developed real estate in California. I mean, you know, again, looking at some of these valuations and then understanding that this doesn't make any sense, that's, uh, you know, where you want to be just so cautious. Can we wrap up with a question around dividends? The Again, there's kind of to these two, obviously the two phases of investing, the accumulation, accumulation, which I think you so smartly put that it is this yeoman's marathon of dollar cost averaging. But then we get to retirement and we're a little more concerned with the value in any given day, our emotions. We have a heightened level of emotion. Typically we have the law of large numbers too, right? We have, we have more invested than we have when we were 20 and 30 and 40. So the swings are bigger on a percentage basis that the numbers are a little bigger. Do you have a particular, I know you talk a lot about dividends and dividend growth, but do you have a particular affinity for or against dividends uh, when you're at least are in the retirement phase or would you rather than focusing on dividends and income do something like a life cycle type fund? What is kind of your thought on those two areas? 
I understand the uh, advantage of dividends because, as I've said, what you don't want to have to do is sell the corpus of an equity portfolio in retirement because you've got uh, a year like 2022 when uh, the market's down 20%. And, you know, who knows, you know, what's going to happen for the rest of 2023. But I don't favor buying some part of the market. I think if you need some uh, income, I'd much rather have you uh, in some bonds, some inflation protected bonds. I'd rather have you get the income that way because once you go to a little part of the market, then you're very much more likely to underperform what a broad-based index fund is going to do. I fully appreciate that when you're in retirement, you need to make sure that the monies are going to be available without huge fluctuations because you've got a budget, you know how much you need to live. But I still prefer that to the extent you're in equities, I want you in a broad-based index fund. And would you say that life cycle funds or even target date funds do to some extent accomplish that? They do to, They do accomplish that. But the my worry about the target date funds is I don't think one size fits all. And as I've suggested, uh, you know, there are some people in retirement who uh, have got plenty of money to live on and they can get the money out of their RMDs or they're in a Roth, which I recommend strongly, where you can get the money out whenever you want. But depending on who you are, how much you've got, whether you're investing for yourself, whether you're investing for your children, whether you're investing for your grandchildren, the one size all fund that shifts you uh, into bonds is uh, I'd much rather have you tailor it to what your own individual needs are and for the reasons that you're investing and for whom you're investing. Our last question from the Retire Sooner audience is what keeps you going and going and going 50 years of this book, 50 years in this career, you really never retired, right? You've always just been working. I'm sure you have plenty. You could have stopped working a long, long, long time ago. What keeps you going? I think what keeps me going is the letters that I receive from people who have read my book over time. And I can't tell you how I couldn't be more pleased when someone says, you know, I, I never made a lot of money in my life. I uh, did what you said, and I'm just amazed at how much money uh, I've got. I've got a table in the book where if someone can put $100 a month, just a little over $20 a week into the market over a lifetime and just let it run, that you could have somebody who was, uh, you know, never wealthy, never uh, had a lot of money. And all of a sudden, that was worth a million and a half dollars. And if you were lucky enough to work for someone who matched it, 
it would be worth $3 million. And the fact is, I've put it in as a hypothetical, but when I get the letters that say, you know, I did that and I thank you, there's just no better feeling. So today we got to hear from a legendary investor who almost set the standard on Wall Street and is still to this day, one of the most sought after thought leaders when it comes to making investing accessible for almost anyone and not just an exclusive club for the very, very wealthy. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This is provided as a resource for informational purposes and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. The mention of any company is provided to you for informational purposes and as an example only and is not to be considered investment advice or recommendation or an endorsement of any particular company. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. The information provided is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only, and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial plan considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained herein.